Welcome to the Alamo City Investing Show. This is episode number three with your host, Jason Lee, and myself, Aaron Beal. Today, we are going to talk about everything with flipping houses. So this will actually be part one of a two-part you know, kind of series on how to flip your first house. We want to make sure that you know, we, we give the topic plenty of time just because this is something probably both of us could talk about for hours. So we want to make sure that you know, we're, we're thorough and you know, kind of cover all the main topics when it comes to flipping houses. That being said, there's a lot to cover. So we're going to jump right in. I'll have Jason go ahead and get us started. You know, kind of the first thing we want to talk about, you know, maybe from your experience or just in general, like if I'm an investor, is this a good place to start? You know, should I, as opposed to wholesaling, flipping, buying rentals, any of those other options is flipping, you know, something you would recommend for someone getting started? When I started off, I I flipped property. That was the first thing that I did. A lot of people will get into wholesaling because it's a thing where if you don't really have any money, but you have some time, a lot of people say get into wholesaling and there's not much risk there. I got into flipping and that was the first thing that I did. And I I mean, I think personally, I think it's great. I think that it forces you to kind of learn all the steps. It forces you how to analyze deals, how to actually manage contractors, come up with the scope of work, how to find a lender and actually work with a lender, how to work with realtors, list on the market. So it forces you to be hands-on. And that's something that I really like about it. But I will say that I was in a position where you could flip a property or I could flip a property rather. And for me, that means that I had the time and the money to do it. So something that I always tell people is like, hey, I would I would have some cash reserves to flip a property, you know, I, I think depends on the project, but at least maybe like 25, 30 K or more somewhere around there liquid. Just so that way, while you're flipping a property, you're not feeling super tight if you have to go over budget or if you have holding costs, that sort of thing. So I had about 25 to 30 saved up and I also had a good amount of time too. I had a W2, I was working in the military, but I was able to take my lunch break, run up to the projects. I was able to take the weekends to to kind of do stuff, do stuff in the evenings. And so just from my experience, I think it's a great place to start. Uh, but I don't know what your thoughts are on that, Aaron. I, I feel like it's very accessible, I guess, is my my thought on it, where, you know, we've talked about wholesaling or buying off market deals in the past. And that, you know, potentially takes less money, but I think is probably a little harder to start. You know, whereas if you have the resources and really just kind of commit to finding a flip like you can do that pretty easily whereas getting a wholesale deal and wholesaling it can be an entire process where you know with you know not that we'd necessarily recommend buying something on the mls but you know that's an option for flipping buying from a wholesaler you can be really picky on exactly what you want where a lot of times when you're wholesaling or buying off-market deals, you kind of take what you're given and figure it out. It's honestly, it's not exactly where I started, but you know, I know that's kind of your background and you know, you had good experiences with that. And I think it's, I mean, if nothing else, it's, it's kind of fun. Everyone wants to, you know, show the, Hey, this is what it looked like before. This is what it looked like after, you know, it's, it's fun to show people. And I think it's one of those things that like everyone kind of has a basic understanding of, which we talked about a little bit kind of before we started, but you know, wholesaling is like, you'll probably know it if you're into investing, but everyone knows what flipping a house is just because all the TV shows, all that stuff. So I definitely think it's a good place to start, you know, as long as 
you know, you're, I guess, methodical in your approach there. We're, we're very big on having significant reserves just because we've been there before and we know things go wrong. Uh, things take longer, you know, everything kind of costs more money and takes more time than you think it will just as kind of a general rule of thumb. But with that, you know, I think it can be a really good place to start and a really yeah, good way to, I wanted to touch on that. You said. Yeah. Something I want to touch on that you said too, was the accessible accessibility piece of it. I was doing it again while I had a full-time job doing it on the side. And so I, for me, wholesaling, that takes up a lot more time. Yes. You don't need a ton of money, but if someone came to me and said, Hey, Aaron, I want to wholesale, but I also have this job that it takes me 40, 50 hours a week. I'm going to say you can do it's definitely doable, but it, it's pretty hard, right? Um, I think it's a lot easier to do a flip on the side while you have a full time job than it is to try to do something like wholesaling. So it's really for people that like at any level, it just yeah. really depends on, you know, like you said, the money piece is probably more of the barrier to entry there. Yeah. And I think the thing with that too is like, it's not like unthinkable to have a full time job and flip two, three, four houses a year. Like, and then, you know, do the math there. You make 20, 30, 40, 50 grand to flip. Like that's like, can be life-changing money on top of, you know, whatever you're currently doing. So I like it for those reasons. I I mean, there's also like, you can kind of jump in and jump out. Like some of our good friends here, they flip quite a few houses, but like, we like love how they're like, Hey, we flip a house. Then when it sells, we go on vacation. Like it can kind of be a thing where, you don't have to be all in all the time. You can do a project when you feel like it. So I guess a lot of those reasons makes me, you know, like it as an option, especially like if you're getting started or if you don't know what you want to do, or you don't know what you like or don't like or that sort of thing, but you want to get started investing. I, I like it for those reasons. Absolutely. So how much money would you say you need to get started with flipping? How much would you have in your reserves? So it depends. I like to be like 30, 40,000 is kind of the, what I would say, you know, that looks different depending on the price of the project, the scope of the work of the project. If you're buying a, if you're somewhere where you can buy a $50,000 house and put 20 in it, you probably don't need as much reserves. If you're buying a $400,000 house and going to put, you know, whatever in it, you're going to need more reserves just because it's more expensive. So I think that's kind of the, you know, the thing to think about too, like the $30,000 may not be enough reserves if you're flipping a half million dollar house, but it may be more than enough if you're flipping 70, 80, whatever thousand dollar house. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think so as well. You know, starting off, I don't know if I would be in the higher price point stuff. When I say higher price points, I'm focused a little bit more on San Antonio, for example. So anything probably like 500s and over is what I consider like a higher price point stuff. You know, my my whole thing with that is those holding costs are a lot higher. Typically, you're going to take a hard money loan, which we're going to go into a little bit later. Uh, that means you're making interest payments on the house. That you know, you're you're. I mean, like two, three, four thousand dollars a month is what you could be spending on interest costs every single month. And so, to me, I think that it just becomes a lot more stressful when you have that much money like leaving the account all the time. And so, I typically would say, you know. Stuff under 500 ARV is probably good for a first time flipper, but a lot of that depends on how much you have in your reserves. At a minimum, I said, like I said before, probably like 30K is what would I'd be comfortable with. And then from there, you can maybe 
niche down like your your the deals that you want so you know hey i have 35k i know that you know i can probably do a project where you know arv is probably 200 300,000 somewhere around there so that might be helpful too just depending on how much reserves that you have you can use that to help create the criteria for your flip yeah and so i guess kind of with that too and kind of criteria so i would probably recommend starting around that kind of entry level house price point which in San Antonio, I would say it's like 250 and under just because that's the stuff that like sells in any market, like there's always demand for it. And then if you get into the over 300 things slow down, over 400 things slow down, anything over 500 is a very like very unique market. So that being said, you know, with higher price points, normally you're making more money just because it's bigger numbers. So I think it kind of depends. Like if someone, you know, came to us and said, hey, I want to flip a house. I have, I don't know, $100,000. And, you know, we found something a little higher price point that isn't a gut rehab. Maybe that makes sense. But at the same time, I think the lower price points are a little safer. Your margins might not be as good, but I think honestly, the first one's just to learn. I mean, because I know we know tons of people that are, hey, I did my first flip. I lost five, 10, 20, $30,000. So, I think the first the first one is I mean not that like breaking even is good but walking away with like 5 10 20,000 is like I think for a first project definitely success. I mean we've had flips recently where we made 5 or 10,000 and it's not fun but you know I think just what you gain through that process on that first one's definitely going to be worth it. What are your thoughts on you know kind of price points criteria definitely. timeline expectations how much you're going to spend all of all of that good stuff? Yeah. And so with the higher price point thing too, you said obviously margins are better when you get to higher price points too. But if you flip that too, like it also gets a lot more scary and there's a lot more risk there as well. Right. So if you price a property at 600,000, then you have to do, you know, for some reason, 10% price reduction, right? That's 60K right there versus, Hey, I have something with the ARV of, you know, 150,000, 10% price reduction. That's only 15K. So playing with, the lower price point stuff on your first one, at least some lower risk there. And, you know, it allows you to just be a little bit more safe with your investments. And then once you learn, then you can maybe get more confidence and go after the the bigger stuff once you have more experience under your belt. But as far as other criteria goes, I would not, I mean, I'm going to focus a little bit more on the rehab, the scope of work and stuff. I wouldn't do anything crazy here in San Antonio. I wouldn't go be going after the stuff that's these 100 year old homes you're going to find over like on the east side. I would stick to stuff maybe, you know, 60s, 70s builds or newer. I would just stick to stuff that's mainly cosmetic, you know, your carpet. I mean, the flooring, the paint, uh, maybe redoing the kitchen, the bathrooms, that sort of thing. Just because the more you open up and the more gut stuff you do, you're going to quickly realize that there's a lot of unknowns. And that's the stuff that really tends to get the first time investors. And also, if you're doing these crazy gut rehabs, you're going to be pulling permits, dealing with, dealing with the city. And that can be definitely a whole headache if you don't know what you're doing. Yeah. So I think with that too, something that people rarely talk about is kind of timelines of projects. So, you know, everyone kind of knows, hey, I'm going to buy this. At, we'll say 75% of the after repair value minus repairs. And that's kind of what people want to buy at or... 70 or 80, depending on your market here, you know, we're probably right now we're probably in the 70, 75%. 
we like buying stuff cheaper, but it doesn't always happen. But with that, the thing that is another big factor is, is this three or four week project or is this, you know, seven, eight month project? So I wouldn't be evaluating the cosmetic rehab that's going to take a month the same as I would, hey, this is a $120,000 gut rehab that I'm going to have to do in addition to force value and all, all these other things, right? So if one, I wouldn't touch anything like that. Personally, I wouldn't touch anything like that ever because we don't like doing those. That's like, you're especially fine. If that's your first project, I definitely want to do that. There's just a lot more that goes into, oh, like, how do I do an addition? How do I, you know, what's it cost to rewire a whole house? Like all of these, you know, big factors, but also like the time expectation. So a 75% deal that takes a month is not the same as a 75% deal that takes 10 months. So I don't think people normally look at that. They're just like, oh, well, it's 75% minus repairs. It's good. Whereas if I'm, if we're selling or rehabbing something like that, like if we're wholesaling it, we will be selling it a lot lower than that because you have to factor in that it's going to take forever. And with big projects, there's more issues. You know, there's, I don't know, you're going to open up stuff, you know, things are going to cost more than you thought they would. Just with the more, like the bigger scope of work, the more opportunity for things to go sideways or go wrong or whatever. So I think that's a, a big thing too. When we talk about, hey, I want to get into a flip, it's like, we're going to jump into some of the areas in town we like and kind of the pros and cons of different areas. But, you know, I think that's the big thing of like, hey, the 80s house and the 1920s house are very different projects. Anything to add to that, Jason? Yeah, I would say just the four things I'd stay away from as a as a new flipper. One, anything that's, you know, these 100-year-old historic homes and anything really in a historic district. San Antonio has these historic districts and neighborhoods pockets. And you can look online. There's like, if you type in like San Antonio historic district map, you should be able to find them. The reason why I say stay away from those is because those have certain rules and regulations that the city requires if you're to rehab them. So that way they can keep some of their like more original features and stuff. So So, sidebar in historic districts. So the biggest thing with those is pretty much you can't do anything on the outside. You have to keep kind of the original facade. I looked at a house several years ago that an out-of-state investor did in a historic district and they took all the stone off the house and the city was like, you need to put all the stone back on the house while they had like a pile of rocks in the front yard. So that's the kind of stuff that can happen, like getting different doors, getting different windows. All of that is something that has to go through a whole like follow these design guidelines or go through this like approval process if it doesn't. There are people that do that and like that stuff. I wouldn't recommend it. We don't do it. Anyway, yeah. continue. It's hard, yeah, it's just harder to price stuff too. Like the the hundred fifty dollar window, normally you can buy at Lowe's, turns into the the four hundred dollar window because it needs some certain special glass because it's or, wood and custom and has to exactly. look exactly yeah like it's from the twenties. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I would stay away from anything like old or historic. The second thing I would stay away from anything that has a stop work order. So you know these are people that maybe were rehabbing a home and then the city got onto them because they didn't pull the permits correctly and now it's on the city's watch list. If you're on the city's watch list, I forgot the name of it. It's it's what's what's the team they call? And they have a special like the a strike, strike team, team. Yeah, the strike force team. So that name should tell you everything about it. But these guys and go ahead. Yeah, and so with that too, like you you would think, right? And I've done this before. I bought a house that was the previous people got red tagged for everything. You would think that you come in as the new owner, like, hey, I want to do everything right. 
that they would want to work with you, but they don't. Like they like you're still getting double feed for everything. You're still getting like they have like this team of like the worst inspectors to deal with. And then the kind of the unknown thing of that is you start dealing with contractors and you're like, hey, I need a plumber. And the plumber realizes who they're dealing with. So they're adding on fees because it's going to make their life hell. So it just becomes this thing where like, even if you have the best intentions in the world of like, hey, this person did this wrong. I don't do that. I'm going to do everything by the book and everything right. The city gives like zero shits about that and still, you know, drags, you know, kind of drags you through everything. So quick side note on that. Yeah. And, and it'll uh, also add, it'll also add, you know, time to your timeline too, because the strike team doesn't care if you need, they don't care about your timeline at all. Right. Like if they don't have time to come check out your property, like they don't care about the inspection. And I've even had it where they've had one, they sent one inspector out to inspect me for something past it. Later on, I need another inspection, different inspector that came for something else and said, Oh, I know what the last inspector told you, but I don't care. You know, these are my rules. And you have to follow my rules. So half the time, I feel like there's no rhyme or reason to do this stuff. It's just they try to make your life hard. Yeah. And like I've had one where like they passed me on framing and then the mechanical guy came out and said, okay, we also like saw this in the framing. We don't like that. And it's like, you already told us it's fine. Yeah. You're also uh, not it, the framing it's just like endless jumping through hoops. Yeah. You're also not the framing inspector. So yeah. So I would definitely stay away for stuff that already has is on the city's watch list. And then third, I would I would pretty much stay away from anything that requires to do an addition, like crazy addition, right? Because there are some people out there that are like, oh, well, you know, this house is only 1100 square feet, but I saw this comp over here that's 1800 square feet. So I want to do this 700 square foot addition. I would, I would likely stay away from those because you're starting to get into like new build territory. And that's just a whole nother dragon or beast, I would say. But do you have anything to add on that new construction stuff or the giant addition stuff? No, I think that like there's times when it makes sense, not necessarily doing an addition, but, you know, maybe it's like adding a bathroom, which if it's a pier and beam house, it's a lot easier than if it's a slab, you know, so some stuff like that where, you know, or maybe it's like, you know, there's like a second story that's like unfinished and kind of like an an attic that's, you know, a full seven, eight feet tall, whatever. Maybe it's finishing something out like that, like that kind of stuff. I I think can work, but yeah, like doing like an actual addition or even like, like converting a garage, I think can be fine. If, yeah. you know, comp support it, you do it well. I hate converting garages, but you know, there's a case for them in certain, certain places, but yeah, the actual like pouring new foundation, doing new structure, like I'm not doing that. Yeah. And so those are the three things that I would absolutely stay away from. And then you can get into things of like, hey, I probably wouldn't do it on my first flip, but you know, people have and they turned out fine. So for me, a big one's like foundation, right? We're, we live in San Antonio. There's tons of foundation issues everywhere, especially once you get into the Northeast, like Converse, that sort of area. And so would you recommend that someone, you know, someone came across a flip, seemed like a the numbers were good, right? But there's foundation issues. Would you recommend that they they go for it or they not? What would you say? I mean, if you can avoid foundation issues perfect the reality is if you're flipping houses in san antonio you're going to deal with foundations so i wouldn't really be scared of them which is interesting because i think people that come from other places Mm -hmm. you know a foundation issue can be very major here i mean not that they're not major they're very common though so if it's if it's pier and beam it wouldn't scare me at all but we've also said don't do pier and beam houses so there's kind of that 
even on slabs, we do a lot of foundation repairs on slabs and we have, you know, good contractors for that, which I think that's the biggest thing. But the other thing that, you know, is I guess less of like a science, but when I'm walking through a house with a slab, I'm also kind of taking mental notes of where, where the foundation's off and where we potentially have plumbing lines. So if it is like a sunroom off the back of the house and that's where I know the foundation's off and I know there's literally no water lines that run through it, I'm a lot less scared of fixing the foundation because you can, you may disagree with this, but my concern with foundations isn't moving the foundation. It's breaking, Mm -hmm. you know, water lines or sewer lines when you fix the foundation. So to me, that's the biggest thing, which we've only had happen a few times. Well, two of those times. Very recently, we've had several. Yeah, two of those times uh, happened this last few months. But depending on what like what that looks like, if you have to tunnel under the house, it gets crazy expensive to fix sewer lines. So, you know, that's one thing that like, you know, it's not like a super defined process, but I'm kind of like, you know, just trying to take mental notes of, hey, where's the foundation off? Oh, it's like right in the kitchen or, you know, right by this bathroom. I'm a little more concerned of if I move this, is it going to create more issues? But that being said, like, we're not very scared of foundations. I, yeah, if you could stay away from them, awesome. But the reality is it's just kind of part of it. And as long as, you know, you take that into consideration and you run your numbers with it and you work with a reputable company that has a transferable warranty, it shouldn't cause any issue in selling it. And agents around here also know like foundation problems are like pretty normal. So they're not going to, you know, steer a client away from a house with a repaired foundation just because it's just part of it. Yeah. Side, yeah. Side note on that foundation. Like when you're flipping, make sure to go get that transferable warranty. Like you're going to, the buyer's going to want it. You're going to need it. You don't need to use these, you know, crazy companies like Ramjack or, you know, Primapier, like those sort of companies, but just make sure you get it because the buyer's going to ask and if you don't have it, they're going to be pretty skeptical to to buy the house. I mean, okay. So th- that being said, one caveat, if it's like, we bought a house that was off by like 13 or 14 inches and there was literally like a fault line in the house, I wouldn't want to touch those again. We did it and it was fine, but like, it was a lot of like, broke the plumbing line. It They fixed it once, they came back and re-leveled it again because it still wasn't right. And even when it's done, it's still not right. Like, it's still not like perfect. Something that's like majorly off like that on a slab I would stay away from if you're three, four, five inches, I wouldn't really worry about it. But anything else on no, kind no, of that stuff before no, we kind no, of just, no, just quickly sum that up. Like pure and beam, not a big deal. It's pretty easy to fix. A slab, just be conservative with your numbers, you know, planning some contingency costs. And if you're able to like get a second opinion on stuff, right? Like if you don't really know and it seems a little bit off and you had your foundation guy go and you don't really know how to like read their bid and that sort of stuff obviously ask them but like hit up me and aaron hit up people that are flippers before and just ask them for their opinions on it like we're more than happy to give us our opinion we're always glad to you know share contractors and stuff like that too the thing that has always been kind of weird to me with foundation contractors is you talk to three people you get three different plans on how to fix it so you know you're gonna have one that says hey i have to fix everything i have to do you know, all new everything, a bajillion peers. The other one's going to say, hey, we can do this or this. So it's always very different. Like we've literally had three or four bids and they're all 
completely different on how they're going to fix the problem. So that's one thing to look out for. But yeah, if, if you come across that and you're in San Antonio, reach out to us. We have a few foundation people we really like. So, but yeah, so next let's jump into just kind of talking about different areas of San Antonio and what we like, what we don't like, what we'd stay away from, or, you know, I will, I'll share my screen for people watching this. And then, you know, we'll also kind of talk through different areas. So you're not just, you know, completely, you know, lost on where we're talking about, but so, so obviously San Antonio is pretty geographically big, a lot of different neighborhoods, a lot of different pockets. And with that, like you have a lot of different types of homes. And so the area that I'm going to start off the bat that almost every flipper will tell you, they, most of them don't like it and wouldn't recommend it for their first. Oh, there we go. Aaron's pulling up the map. They wouldn't recommend it for your first flip. I've done one here, lost a lot of money. Aaron's done one here, lost a lot of money. There's definitely money to be had, but not by newer investors, I would say, is over on the east side of San Antonio. So when I say the east side of San Antonio, I'm talking just east of downtown. So that's Denver Heights area, mainly Aaron zooming in on the map here. Yeah, Denver Heights, Jefferson Heights, basically anything between like the Riverwalk area and used to be the AT&T Center, now like the Frost Bank Center, all that. It's basically, it's just an area that is slowly being gentrified and there's all these promises with the city pouring in money. Like there's supposed to be this Essex city modern project that's been supposedly up and coming in the past like 10 plus years and all these, you know, promises for money to be dumped in there. So when you drive through that neighborhood, you'll see one house that's like recently flipped, sold for, you know, three, 400,000. And then the next to that, you see a house that's completely dilapidated, probably hasn't been touched in you know, 60, 70 years that's fallen apart. I, I mean, honestly, it, it, there's just a, the reason why I don't enjoy flipping there is one ton of inventory. Like if you, if you go on Zillow right now and you check out all the homes that are for sale that are recently flipped, you, there's going to be dozens and dozens. So tons of competition. And then two, there's just a lot of like, honestly, people walk like homeless people walking around drug addicts and which is like, you can have a really nice house and still walk outside and buy crack. Yeah, Things Jason much. won't say that I'll... Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll start to put it nicely. But also, like, when you're flipping houses, too, like, stuff gets... Like, I've had break-ins in my flips over there. I've literally had one where we listed on the market. There was a showing, and the buyers walked into the house, and they looked all the way to the backyard, and there were just some crack addicts, like, shooting up in the back. And they literally waved at them, and they continued on their business. Or is it, like... The thing that is even more frustrating than people breaking in that we've both had happen is when people just like throw a brick through your window or your door or whatever. For no reason, they don't steal anything. They just throw a brick through the house. So there's some nice neighborhoods over here. There's some better than others. You know, there's some very key dividing lines like, you know, New Braunfels is a big one. You don't want to be on the wrong side of New Braunfels. Walters after that. That being said, though, like it's a really hot place for flipping all these like early 1900s houses. Some good projects, some bad, but we pretty much like we'll buy a deal there, but like we're not flipping houses there. And that's just kind of our preference on that. Yeah. So when if if you guys ever see numbers from a wholesaler, first of all, always do your due diligence. But second of all, like for as many great comps as they're going to provide, there's probably a lot of not so great comps that are being left out because, again, there's just so much inventory over there that there's going to be comps everywhere. So that's cool. that's the let's, first uh, let's hit some, some other neighborhoods. So the other one on the list of like, I don't love it is this, you know, west side of San Antonio. 
And so just if we're talking about San Antonio in general, kind of this whole downtown area is going to be your kind of 1900s houses. Cool character, all like pier and beam. You know, they're going to need rewired, replumbed, kind of like anything you can think of. We kind of stay away from those. But the nicer, you know, the the west sides, I think it's, I, I would feel probably a little safer on the west side or, or the west side, you know, less like my stuff's going to get broken into. It's just the price points aren't really there. It's just mm-hmm. a lot. It's, you know, it's really cheap. You know, it probably works for some owner finance stuff better than than flipping. Then you kind of get into the the south side. I actually like the south side all right. And it's actually gotten a lot better in the past few years. You know, even this area here of Highland Park, still kind of east side-ish, but I like it a little better. Pecan Valley, this whole area is kind of nice. It's it's more like 70s, 80s builds, very similar houses, so they're easy to comp. What else you got, Jason? So an interesting one is a little bit more up in Woodlawn Lake area. So that's another one where, you know, values, depending on what literally certain streets that you're on in certain little pockets in the Woodlawn Lake area. So it can be very interesting. So a lot of historic homes over there, but you literally get into one neighborhood on one street and values can go down by like 100,000, 150,000. Well, so in Woodlawn specifically, Calabria is a big dividing mark. And the difference in being on this side of the lake and this side of the lake is is quite different too. Mm-hmm. So in like another one, you'll see a lot of people trying to sell deals on in Cincinnati. And I'd never buy a house on Cincinnati because it's a very busy street and values are never going to be the same. Just random things to know. But then you can, so Woodlawn is a, you know, I would say a, a nicer, you know, if you're going to be in the downtown neighborhood, a better place to flip anything here kind of north. So you kind of have Tobin Hill and the Pearl and Beacon Hill, Monte Vista, all of those. This whole area is all like a little higher price point, nicer houses, Mankey Park's pretty nice. I think the all of them are good. It just there's still gonna be those kind of nineteen hundreds houses that you're gonna get all the way up until kind of here on the north side. And then you're gonna get into, you know, kind of seventies, eighties builds. The biggest thing that I would note is a lot of these areas, what we're, what I'm trying to get at, at least is like, just know the dividing lines because in that area, like the almost park area, if you look in, there's Blanco is a dividing line and then San Pedro is another dividing line. And again, it's like one street, but it makes like a really big difference when it comes to home values and all that sort of stuff. So when you're looking at a lot of these neighborhoods close to downtown, just double check like what the, you know, where the divine lines are. If you don't know, like ask someone that knows the area because it's very easy to accidentally pick comps over here and it will completely throw off your ARB. So let's go out a little bit more. So, and honestly, this is kind of the, as we get further out, that's the areas we probably like more. You kind of get outside 410 and you're getting a little newer houses. So, you know, this inner loop 410 and then kind of between there and 1604, the outer loop, I would say you get, you know, houses that are, you know, 70s, 80s, 90s, early 2000s built, depending on where you are. That's the stuff we really like just because it's more predictable. A lot of times it's more cosmetic work. A lot of people really like this northeast side area. I would say I'm kind of indifferent on it. But a thing to know too, like Windcrest is a like very nice northeast neighborhood, really nice, cool, big houses. But the difference in being in Windcrest and not in Windcrest is, you know, Camelot's like a little sketchy, Mm -hmm. but you know, 
the difference in being in Windcrest and Camelot could be $100,000. So just things to know. We've done, you know, lots of stuff out here. Converse, I feel like almost always has foundation issues yep. everywhere in Converse. And I've looked at houses that are like four or five years old that already have, you know, slabs that are broken out here, which is insane. But then I would say we really like once you get kind of outside 1604 on the Northeast side. So we've always done well in like Live Oak, Universal City, Shirts, Cibolo, all that stuff I ran off, I would say is a little nicer neighborhoods and we always do really well there. So would you agree with that, Jason? Yeah, I would. I personally, I love Universal City. I've done like five, six different flips there and all of them have sold really fast. We had one recently that we flipped listed last week, a week and a half ago, and it was on a contract day one, which is very odd for this market. So I I very much enjoy uh, once you get a little bit further out inside a Converse Windcrest area to that Live Oak Universal City area. And over to the, to the left, I guess, towards the northwest side. I like the northwest side too. That was actually the first flip where I've done or what I did back like five years ago. And people just like the northwest side too. It's like a, it's pretty safe. You can get a lot of like 80s builds, you know, 90s builds, that sort of thing. And so I'm talking a little bit more like inside 1604, like 78245 or 49. Like this area? Yeah, like that kind of area. Like 49 area. Yeah, all those areas. No, I very much like. um, I think. Yeah, they're all. The thing that I like, I mean, so a lot of the areas we like to flip aren't places I necessarily like love the houses. I, I really like a lot of the downtown houses, the character they have, all that stuff. But if I'm flipping, I want like, I like more cookie cutter neighborhoods because it's a lot easier to find the exact same floor print or floor plan and say, hey, this 1500 square foot 1999 build sold for this. I know I can be that exact same thing. Whereas there's a lot more variation with older kind of more unique houses. So that's one thing I really like about that. We also really like pretty much anything in this section between, you know, outside 410, between 281 and 10, Castle Hill, Chavano Park, Hollywood Park, literally anything there. Little higher price points. You're going to be hard. It's going to be hard to find something ARV under 300 in this area, but very desirable because you're, I mean, you're close to the airport. You're still like close to downtown. You're close to you know, Stone Oak, the Rim, all all the places people kind of want to be. And then one thing I'll talk about. So this Alamo Heights is a very, Alamo Heights, Terrell Hills, very desirable area, mainly because I'd say most people would say it has the best school, district. best or most desirable school district in, in the city. So that's one thing to know about that. And we've done the difference in something being an Alamo Heights school district and being one block over outside Alamo Heights school district could be several hundred thousand dollars. Mm-hmm. Same thing with, with Terrell Hills. Terrell Hills that's in Alamo Heights is very different than Terrell Hills that's in Northeast side. Or we did a project. Where was that? Kind of up here by the airport, random little neighborhood that's Alamo Heights. But the difference in, you know, us being able to sell that for a lot more was the Alamo Heights school district. So, you know, we were able, we knew that and we were able to price it higher because we knew we were pretty much giving someone, you know, a house that would cost them, you know, $200,000 more if it was in Alamo Heights proper, but they still got the school district. So knowing some stuff like that can, you know, be super helpful. But honestly, Alamo Heights, Terrell Hills, unless that's your thing, I would stay away from it just because there's so much variation. It's super expensive. I I mean, we would do a project there. I don't know that I actually have, but 
other than like small condos and stuff. But I would probably just stay away from it. Would you agree with that, Jason? Yeah, I think that's really good because, again, like the the school district there more than anywhere else in San Antonio matters. And that one that you were talking about, we were actually right on the dividing line between the Alamo High School District and then the Northeast Side School District. And so it's kind of cool because I think they got to choose which school district they wanted to go to. But it's crazy because it's in the same same neighborhood. Our house to the right was in the Alamo High School District and the house to the left was in the Northeast School District. So pretty interesting. Yeah. Um, and so, and then let's just getting a little more broad, I guess some of the less thought about stuff that we actually really like. So we do projects pretty much anywhere within a few hours of San Antonio, but some of our, our best deals are, are in some of these kind of outskirt towns. The one exception I would stay away from, stay away from anything in my Medina Lake. Cause it's like, you can have the nicest house in the world and it's free. The most recent stuff I've looked at Medina Lake is it's it's like 3% full. So we've, we're actually looking at a house there now that's lakefront, but like there's no lake. So there's like a very small part where water stays in it, but you'll be like, oh man, like that seems cool. It's on the lake. And then you realize like this is the only part that has water ever. So yeah, don't let the map fool you. There's no water there. Yeah. Right now. I just like the values just aren't there stuff sits it's weird but you know a lot of these other places we've done really well so you know we've done projects in divine Poteet, pleasanton floresville you know a lot of these we've done mobile homes which i think are really good options for people getting started too because the price points are normally a little cheaper and they still are more targeted towards you know first-time buyers so they sell but you know we do quite a bit in Skeen, McQueenie, kind of this area. I love New Braunfels. We don't do a ton of deals there, but we like when we get deals there. They they seem to go well. New Braunfels is, you know, one of the areas that's growing a lot between here and Austin. We love stuff in up 281 all the way up to Canyon Lake. We've done, we have a house right now in Blanco. What else? Kerrville. We've done a handful full of deals in Kerrville that have actually always gone really well. The thing once you get into some of these, you know, kind of outskirts is there's a little less demand because people are, you know, scared or kind of more unfamiliar with them. But those are places we've done really well. You know, the struggle with some of that is getting getting contractors to travel the 45 minutes away or whatever that looks like. But if you can, you know, there's there's normally pretty good demand with selling and you can normally get cheaper deals on stuff that's not like in the city city you agree with that jason yeah i think we're going to move on the last thing i'll say though and this is kind of just like a general thing as far as location goes is i would be wary to buy anything where it's right next to some railroad tracks like right across the street from it pretty much or anything that's like right next to the highway because it's a lot of the intangibles of like i don't know this is going to affect the values for sure because nobody wants to hear you know cars going on the highway all the time and getting that pollution or whatever, but it's hard to quantify that, right? Like you might find the right buyer that doesn't care. You might, it might sit forever and you have to price it 30K lower than you thought and it still might not sell. So I would just yeah. be careful of some of that stuff too. Yes. I mean, with that, I don't think that there's like a standard, like, or at least if there is, I don't know of an equation for that kind of stuff. You know, it's more like, cool, you can take your chance and see what happens. But yeah, I mean, so. 
hopefully that kind of summarizes, you know, different areas of San Antonio, what we like, what we don't like, stuff we like to stay away from. But man, I think we are, I think we're out of time for this first part. So hopefully that was helpful. Tune in next week for kind of the second part of this where we're going to jump into how you run your numbers, how you fund deals, how you find contractors, how you manage projects, all the stuff of like, hey, we found where we bought a house. Now what do we do? It's going to kind of be the second part of this. So hopefully that was enjoyable. Thanks for staying along for the ride. And yeah, so we will continue next week. If you want to follow me or Jason or connect with us, the best way is probably Instagram. Mine is just at Aaron.Beal. Jason is investor Jason Lee. And yeah, we're always glad to answer questions and DMs, help however we can. Feel free to hit us up and we will be back next week.